Hello and welcome to another episode of Love Selling Hate Sales. I am Josh Wagner. You know, in the sales process or sales cycle, there are all of these different stages and you think of all of the different things that you do. You've got your initial outreach and setting of meetings. You've got your discovery stage, maybe your deep dive or your demo stage. You've got a proposal. And then everybody's CRM has this stage called negotiation, right? Negotiation review. At least that's what I have in my CRM. And I was thinking back about the history of this show, and I don't think I've had an episode dedicated to negotiations, yet it's such a critical part of the sales process. And I'll give you my opinion, and I can't wait to talk to our next guest about this because I love being proven wrong, but I'm a firm believer that there's really two parts of a sales cycle when you boil it all down. There's discovery and negotiation, and discovery feeds really good negotiation. That's my point of view. That doesn't mean it's the right point of view, but to talk to us about what real negotiation looks like is our guest today, Mark Raffin, who is the head of sales and training at Negotiations Ninja. Mark, thanks for joining the show, and I can't wait for you to tell me how wrong I am. You are not wrong. So thank you so much for having me, Josh. I, that's the end of the show, I we're guess. It. Thanks okay. for having me. We See all later, agree folks. and we're out. Good show. Good show. Yeah, I love it. No. So, you know, one of the things I loved about reading your stuff, Mark, was that you really differentiated between negotiation strategy and tactics. And if you're anything like yeah. me, people tend to always gravitate towards tactics. What's the difference? Tactics is like the it's like the sexy part that we see on TV, right? Like that's the part of negotiation where we're like, ooh, that was a cool line. I wonder if I could create that line in what I do. Or, wow, I really like what she did with her body language there. I wish I could do something like that. That's what we mean by tactics. Strategy is what you do to plan to get towards the place where you can implement the tactics. So understanding what you want to get out of the negotiation, understanding what the counterparty wants to get out, knowing where you might be willing to walk away from the deal, knowing where your range of acceptable outcomes in, figuring out how you're going to concede on certain things. Those are all parts of the strategy. And without good strategy, tactics means nothing. There's a Sun Tzu saying that says, tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. And that's how we feel about strategy and tactics in our negotiations. You cannot have a good negotiation without good strategy. And I think the the media has done us a disservice. Movies like Wolf of Wall Street or Boiler Room or you know Great those stuff. kinds of movies where you see these slick talking sales dudes on the phone and all of a sudden they're able to magically create a deal out of thin air and you're like, wow, that's amazing. The reality is, is that's just not reality. And deals are created by a disciplined and strategic approach to planning good negotiations. Yeah, I love that. And so when you think about planning your negotiation, right, that has to be at a, it feels to me like it really comes down to a product by product, service by service, company by company level. Obviously there are best practices and frameworks that you can apply to that. But thinking about, you mentioned yes. all these things in the strategy, like, What's good for you? What's good for them? What are you trying to aim for? There's so many things that go into it. So talk to me about step one, when you're thinking about building a negotiation strategy for your business, what's what's the first foundational building block that you your mind goes to? Understanding what you wanna get out of it, 
right? I mean, fundamentally, I think especially in sales, we do ourselves a disservice sometimes of always trying to understand what the counterparty wants. And that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a very good thing. But often at the detriment of what we want to get out of it. And we end up sacrificing so much of what we want to get to help our counterparty get what they want to get out of the negotiations. So I like to start first start by saying, well, what do you want to achieve in this negotiation? And then when people look think of that question, they're like, well, I mean, I want to get a deal. And I say, okay, well, the deal is the outcome right. of the negotiation, right? Like that's where we want to end up. Well, they say, well, I want to make money. I'm like, okay, great. Now we're starting to get places, right? That's a broad aspirational goal. What else? Well, I also want to reduce risk. Okay, good. Still pretty broad. And now once we can start to get those aspirational goals in place, the make money, the reduce risk, whatever they might be, now you can start to think, okay, how will I make money in this deal? Okay, great. What are the drivers of that? How much do I have to sell? How much do I have to price this at? How much am I going to increase my pricing by? Am I going to ask for referrals? Am I going to ask for a cross-sell, upsell, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? All of those things become negotiable items when we go into the negotiation. Make more money is not a negotiable item, right? We can't negotiate for that in the deal. but. A price is something that we can negotiate for. The amount of something that we sell, the volume of what we sell, is what we can negotiate for. How that's deployed is what we can negotiate for. All of those things become now negotiable objectives. We call these success drivers. So they drive the success of the aspirational goal that we set at the beginning of the negotiation, and we work towards those. That's our side of the conversation. And then we've also got to have, obviously, the counterparty side. Too. Yeah, I mean, even the concept of make more money, what does that even mean? Is it more revenue? Doesn't Is it anything. margin? Is it, you know, there's so right. many different ways you can look at make money, right? Depending on how your business right. makes money, right? There could be, I mean, say you're a SaaS company and, you know, year one, if you keep your acquisition at a certain place, your acquisition costs, you're going to be making way more money in year two and three, right? So how much are you willing to give up in year one to get that back end, right? You know, they're, you know, a one-year deal, a two-year deal, all those different types of things. So make more money right. is so vague to your point. I like that. Um, so once you've got that construct in place, right, and you know what success looks like to you, how does that change earlier parts of the sales cycle? I think for a lot of people, when they go into, especially they're starting out the prospecting side of things, if they're going into prospecting and they're not thinking about what the objectives might be to get out of a deal, that's when they're starting to do themselves a bit of a disservice. Um, so not that I want you to have a full-blown negotiation strategy from prospecting onwards, but I do want you to start thinking about what you might be wanting to get out of the relationship with someone. Because I think because salespeople, generally speaking, and this is a generalized statement, so don't get mad when you hear this, we're people pleasers, right? So we come into a lot of our relationships as a means to please the counterparty. And oftentimes, especially if you're dealing with a really sophisticated and knowledgeable person on the counterparty side, you immediately start creating concessions 
in your discussion with them when they ask you for additional things. So you might say, hey, this software that we're selling, this SaaS product that we're selling is priced at $100 a seat. And you know you get all of these things that come along with that, plus you get the support package. And they say, well, does that include like a 24-hour 1-800 line that I need to be able to? Oh yeah, yeah, we could we could throw that. Right. In. Now what you're doing is you're you've already conceded value you, yeah. in that negotiation. You've already started to give things away without even thinking that that's actually what you're doing. So. Prior to going into even your first conversation with that person, you don't need a full-blown negotiation strategy, but at least start to think about how you might retain and build value in that discussion instead of just what we all do, which is concede value right away to try and keep securing more and more of that conversation. So I got to ask you, where did this tactic come from that I'm seeing in B2B SaaS that kills me every time I hear it, where early, early, early in a cycle... They say, well, this is our rack price, but you know, the end of the quarter's yeah. coming up, the end of the month's coming up, and you can always right. do better then. And they, what the hell is that? Yeah, why they is this happening? They themselves into a discount. I don't know why. I, I have no idea. Well, look, I mean, fundamentally, we know that salespeople are compensated by commission, sure. right? Their commission gets paid out only if they meet their quota. And so, if they meet quota and if they exceed quota, they are happy, they make commissions. So my guess is what they're trying to do is expedite the process of meeting quota so that they can get to the commission strategy. Unfortunately, it's a big mistake because what's all that you're doing is delaying a decision up to a certain point. And by the way, Everyone knows that that discount doesn't go away at the end of the month. It doesn't go away at the end of the quarter. It doesn't go away. If I call you the next day, you're still going to give me the discount, right? right? You're going to make that so sale. Obnoxious. No question. So so why, why would you talk about it up front? It doesn't make any sense. It's fine for you to say our pricing is this, but then shut up. Like, don't say, well, if you call me back in 25 days, you're going to get a phenomenal deal. Right? Like, why would you do that? I love how That's you put bananas. your DJ voice on there. That was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. So, you know, one of the th little little tips that I learned early on in as it relates to negotiation was I really learned the ins and outs of our master service agreement, our contract, yeah. and learned what mattered and what didn't. Like, what was important to the business and what really wasn't. I think that's an undervalued thing that people just don't do. They just hand off all that to procurement or legal or whatever, but I want to own that. I want to know, right? Because then I can start to push buttons and pull levers when it comes to negotiation and understand what the throwaway things are that may seem valuable and vice versa. Yeah, and that's, I mean, this is especially true, and I think you're, you've got the perfect strategy. This is especially true when I see people interacting with procurement. Like they try and delay that right to the end of the conversation because they're avoiding that pain. Don't do that, right? Try and bring them in early into the discussion because they've got needs, they've got wants, they've got desires that they want to have in this negotiation too. And if we delay that too long, they're not a part of the value that you've already created for the business user. And so when the business user lobs it over the fence to procurement and says, okay, hey, put a deal together, procurement has no idea what's going on. They don't know what kind of value you've created. They have no idea of the customer 
journey that you've taken the business user through. And so they're how could you blame them for wanting no. to get their pound of flesh? They don't know, right? So they're going to immediately say, "Cool, nice story, give me my money." Right? Like that's going to be part of the conversation. So bring them in early into that so that you can understand their pain. Even like data security, I mean, we've all received those 100-page questionnaires on data God, like bring them into the discussion early so that you can understand what the real pain points are for them. Yeah, I love it. You know, it's one of the things that I really, if you think I get, I have mixed emotions on qualification, right? Because I think things like Bant and Medic and all those things, th those aren't very customer friendly, right? Like nobody wants to be qualified. I think there's a, an right. art to qualification that's happening every step of the way in every conversation. And just because somebody was qualified on one call doesn't mean they're qualified on the next call. But that's right. a maybe another topic for another day. But if I feel someone is like really qualified and there's a deal here, right? I want to get procurement involved. I want someone reviewing my MSA. I want, you know, I want all that stuff to start happening now in parallel to solution design. Because then yeah. you're working those two things together. And like you said, you're not lobbying over the fence to procurement person who is probably comped on some sort of how can we do better by the business metric? I don't know what it is. Well, I mean, they are. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, I mean, and like I was a procurement person for many, many Great. years. I can tell you that they are specifically comped based on the value that they drive for the business. It's not the same as a sales compensation sure. plan where it's like very much sort of X gets Y, but they are compensated for the value that they drive. So they're going to look for that. And if you can help create that for them, it makes it way easier to have that conversation. That's exactly right. So how much in your, you know, you talked about building value, right? Not conceding value early on. So there's this uh, interesting, you know, especially in B2B SaaS, you see folks have these value engineering teams and value consulting that his job is to build a business case. I, I think that sellers need to figure out how to do that shit themselves. Like you need to understand how to build and derive value out of a deal cycle. So how much does that go into your negotiation strategy? I think it's fundamentally about, it's going to sound super simplistic, but fundamentally about understanding what the counterparty needs, yeah. right? Like what does this business user actually need? And then how do they determine success? Like what is success actually to them? Because getting the deal is one thing, closing the deal, getting the software, getting the solution, getting the service, getting the consulting practice in place is one thing. Cool. We've got someone who can help us, but what are we helping them with and why is that important? Once we can understand why that's important and what value that drives for the business, then we can start understanding how what we do drives value for that. Without that, it becomes almost impossible for us to understand how what we do, do actually drives value for that organization. It's, a, it's an impossible task. So having like just a frank, simple conversation with your business user to say, hey, what is the impact to the business to get this thing? Like what problem are you actually trying to solve? Yep. And then also understanding the opposite of that question is, what is the impact to the business if we don't solve this problem? Because not being able to solve that problem is going to create an impact. And if you don't understand what that impact is, how are you going to condition the counterparty and help them with that decision? We all talk about like urgency and importance, right? Like how do we 
condition the counterparty with urgency and importance. The two questions that I always ask are, when does a solution need to be in place and when does a decision need to be made? And when, what is the impact to that solution not being in place by that time? And what's the impact to the business if it doesn't happen? So if we don't hit that, then we're never going to be able to understand how we drive value. Yeah. And so I made the comment at the, at the opening about, you know, there's really only two stages in a sales process, discovery and negotiation. And I feel like you're backing me up here with what you're saying. You don't know those things unless you do do the discovery, right? And you can't. And by the way, discovery is continuous. Correct. It's always happening. Right. Like it, it there is no like, oh, we do discovery for these meetings and then, it's over. And then that's over. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it happens throughout the discussion. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like if you're doing discovery the way you're describing it, right, you're just teeing up the negotiation. You're putting little feathers in your cap that you can use later to understand what's important what's not as important you know you kind of have this sliding scale of things that you can use and figure out how to use them and then even with your procurement folks you should be doing some sort of discovery right understand where they're coming from understand what their role is what you know they're not going to tell you how they're comped but i mean just getting to know them they're people too just like the champion you may have built in the other side on the business user side there there are people too and that's the biggest thing i found with procurement is treat them like people and not like procurement robots and they're going to be a little nicer to you yeah i mean treat people like people what a novel shocker yeah kind of crazy (laughs) that's a that's a weird one well that's going to be our big win for the day treat people like people so We've got the the bones of a, of a strategy, right? And I think we've talked through some right. of those key points, right? Like, what do you want to get out of a deal? What does your customer want out to get out of a deal? What does success look like? What does that impact the business? I think those are all good fundamental building blocks for starting your negotiation strategy. If we pivot that over, what are some of the tactics that are tactics that people might not even think of? right? That comes out of having a well-formulated strategy. Well, by knowing what you want to actually achieve, you can be able to ask for more than those things so that you can get to a point that makes sense for your organization. Like a lot of people go into negotiations without having any idea of what they're trying to achieve. And then they come out with a deal and they're like, hey, I got a great deal. And you're like, well, don't qualify it with great. How do you know it's great? You got a deal. We have no idea whether or not it's great because you didn't know what you wanted to achieve in the first place. So if you don't know what you want to achieve in the first place, how do you know if it's great? So make sure that you write all those things down so that when you go in and you ask for more than those things, then you can land up in an area that makes sense for you. And that's the starting point of asking for more. And tactically, that's the biggest area I see where most salespeople fail. They don't ask for more than what they think they need to get the job done. They ask for exactly what they think they need to get the job done, which is further to the conversation that you had earlier around call me in 20 days and get a better deal. Right. Right. So they're they're trying to expedite the conversation and avoid rejection. They think it's going to go faster, but here's the reality. The counterparty is going to negotiate with you anyway. Regardless. So you've just negotiated with yourself before you even go into the negotiation. Yeah. And you've immediately lost value in that conversation. And that's the biggest tactical fail that I see is people not asking for more than what they need to get the job done. Yeah. So I'll give you an example of something that, you know, early on. So I worked for a small consulting firm for 
you know, RevOps and, and, and marketing automation consulting firm for a number of years before we were acquired. And our number one priority in any deal was cash flow. We were small, right? We were bootstrapped. Right. We weren't VC backed, none of that. Like cash flow was our number one priority. So upfront payment mattered more payment than terms were a big deal anything else. And yeah. I could basically give way on anything to prioritize cash flow. And I knew, I knew that going in. So, you know, go from net 30 to net 60, payment up front, sure. Um, changing the state of governance, sure. You know, there, uh, oh, indemnification, a little bit different, sure. Like there's all these different things that I knew didn't really matter that much as long as cash flow was 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 taken care of this is this brings up an interesting point though josh because what you're identifying is something that so many salespeople don't do they don't go and sit down with their leader first and say okay what do we care about what do we care about going into this deal you were smart enough to sit down with someone and go okay what do we care about and they said cash flow get cash up front if we can get cash up front we'll pretty much agree to most things you're like, great. Now that's given me something that I can actually use as leverage in a negotiation. But most salespeople don't do that. They go in and think they know what their organization wants. And then they come back with a deal to their VP, their leader of sales, and say, hey, I got a deal. And their leader's like, dude, these are net 120 payment terms. We're only getting paid in four months. What are you doing? And like, Oh, I didn't realize cash flow was that important. Yeah, we're a startup, man. Come on, use your brain. You're like, oh, okay, cool. Go back and renegotiate that deal. Now, you know, if he had done that work or she had done that work at the beginning, it would have been way easier. Yeah, and I will tell you that it's easier said than done, right? And as you go up market, right? That works okay when you're working in the SMB in the mid markets, but the Fortune 100 does not wanna pay anything up front. They want it all to be in the rears. They all want it to be milestone driven, this and that. So you can imagine some of the negotiations I had with the Fortune 100 oh, yeah. trying to get upfront payment terms. And I will tell you, I rarely lost. Yeah, well, because you knew that was the primary objective of the business, right? Yeah. So you were willing to probably make concessions on other items to be able to get those things. And now those become tradable things within the negotiation. Totally. Yeah. Makes sense. When we were... I mean, that's going to be really important now. I don't know when this goes to air, but we're in a market right now where interest rates are insane, right? So think of it like salespeople. If you're listening to this, think of it from the corporation's perspective. If they have to float your salaries and pay for things every couple of weeks, every month, if they have net 120, net 90 payment terms on a deal, that means they're only getting paid every 90 to 120 days, which means they've got to float that cash where they pay you for maybe three months or more before they get paid, which means they have to borrow money to be able to do that. And the interest rates on that borrowing is insane. So if you haven't gotten a phone call or your VP of sales hasn't gotten a phone call from your CFO this week saying, holy shit, make sure you get the right payment terms, it's coming, I promise. Uh, you're totally right. And you know, there's another piece of that, even more selfish if you're a seller, understand how you get paid. Yes. How are you compensated? I've when does the commission get paid out? Yeah, I've seen yeah. reps negotiate a deal that totally Fs them. Yeah. And they don't even know it. 
Yeah. Like, Wait, why am I not getting paid on this until 2026? I'm like, well, that's how you structured the deal, bro. <laughs> it's exactly. It's not good. Yeah. So I, I do think that there's just a lot to to be said. So if we recap the the big things, right? Like deal strategy or negotiation strategy and negotiation tactics are not the same thing, right? The strategy needs to be rooted in what do you want out of a deal? And you need to distill that down from, okay, I want to make money. Great. Well, what does that mean? Are you looking for margin? Are you looking for revenue? Are you looking for cash flow? Like start to whittle it down into what matters to the organization, how the organization gets paid, how you get paid, and what does success of the deal look like? The second piece is what does success for the customer look like? What is the value you're deriving? What is the impact on the business of doing it and not doing it? And then finally, you can take that framework and apply it to tactics, right? Knowing how to structure the deal on the front end, knowing what levers you can pull once you get into those exact negotiations. Those are the type of tactics I think you're talking about. Yeah, correct. And just being able to make sure that you're not sacrificing the strategy for the tactics. Hmm. There's a lot of negotiation training out there that'll teach you, you know, say these three things and you'll get better results. I mean, it sounds really, really good, and you will sound phenomenal, but if the three things that you're saying don't align to the strategy that you haven't built, uh, you're going to sound great, but it's not going to generate results. So, And I'm not saying tactics are a bad thing. Tactics are great. They are an important part of the, the overall negotiation repertoire, but make sure you focus on strategy first. Yeah. One of my favorite, I don't, I'd, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on it. One of my favorite books on negotiation is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Very good book. Did you like, We've yeah. Had it on our show a few times. Have you? Great. I just think, I thought it was such a, such a human centric way of gathering information and applying it. Right. And it, it just, it almost sounds too easy, but if you really apply those principles, it works like at the end of the day. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that book that's like super super brilliant, and it and when you read it for the first time, you go, oh right, of course, of course they responded this way, of course that works that way. I would just caution. The only thing that I would caution people on is, and this is for all negotiation books, specifically those books that give you lines to say, is be careful that you don't get stuck in one way of asking for something because naturally what ends up happening is it becomes so popular that everyone starts to use it and then objections are things that usually people find ways around and you're going to deal with someone that says yeah, cut the cut the shit let's just get straight to you know and then you're like oh well uh uh and then you're stuck in that kind of a situation, which is why I always default to strategy, because that's a good formatted route to be able to say, okay, where am I? What do I want to do? Um, and that's just on all negotiation books, mind you, including the one that I'm writing right now. Make sure you don't just follow one way of doing something. Read as much as you can um, about the topic, because it's going to give you a much broader understanding of what's available to you. Dude, I love that advice. That is great. That's a that's a great gem. I, I agree. You can't do things one way the whole time and things do get saturated. People pick up on things, right? They hear totally. things and they're they're gonna be able to call your bullshit at some point. So Mark, so people know how to do this the right way. What do they need to know about you, about negotiation ninja? Why should they work with you? How can they find you? Give us all the information. Easiest way to get a hold of us is on our website, which is www.negotiations.ninja. 
And you can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well or listen to our podcast, Negotiations Ninja Podcast, uh, which is one of the top negotiation podcasts in the world where we've had guys like Chris Voss, for example, come on the show and talk about his experiences around hostage negotiation and all of the things that he's done. His um, his predecessor, the guy that started before him, was a gentleman named Gary Nesner, who was also the first FBI's chief hostage negotiator. He's the guy that negotiated in the Waco crisis, for example. We've had him on, as well as poker experts, persuasion experts, people from M&A, all sorts of folks. So if you want to listen to a great negotiation show, that's the one. I love it. That sounds great. All right. So make sure you visit Mark negotiations.ninja. Check out that podcast. I will definitely be doing it. If you liked our episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Help us expand our reach. Mark, thank you for joining the show. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me. You've got a fantastic show. And for the listeners that are listening in right now, what I want you to do is go and hype this show up as much as you can on LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever you are on social media, because Josh is doing an amazing job and he deserves it. Well, thank you, Mark. Have a good one.